You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are at the KGVM offices speaking via Zoom with geneticist Jennifer Raff. We are excited to talk with Dr. Raff about her new book, Origins, A Genetic History of the Americas. But first, as always, Crystal, how was your week? It was a great week. A great week in the Extreme History offices. We have been working, doing a lot of work with Black History Month, but now yes. we're prepping for Women's History Month. Oh, boy. It's like a double header. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So, of course, we always do a lot with um, Black History and Women's History. So, you know, we don't really need the months to do it, but, you know, we, right. we use them. We use those months. So, um, yeah. so, yeah. So, I'm working on some presentations for Women's History Month and then also some articles and and social media posts and stuff like that. So Fantastic. Get the woman's story out there. Absolutely. Get the woman's yeah. story out there. Yeah. I love that. What Good. about you, Nancy? Yeah, it's been it's been busy. I am getting ready to take my daughter Kaylee to go see a university this weekend. Um, she's on that college path, so we're going yeah. to Arizona. Um, to take a look and we'll be back. So I, I will, you know, have a, have a decision from her probably pretty soon. Wow. All that's starting to happen. You yeah, know, I know we're getting into March. Yeah. yeah. And other than that, we've just had bitter cold temperatures I know. this week. This yeah. week here in Montana, it's been negative 20, negative 17. And it has yeah. felt even colder with yeah. the wind, but, yeah, um, wind on the upside, we had, the downtown crazy days. So oh, yeah. Mocha yeah. was um, seeing was lots busy. of people coming in, shopping okay. the sales, and trying to get away from the cold and buy warm things. Okay. So it was a good week. Yeah. <laughs> so we should probably get back to our guests. We should. We should. Well, we're so glad to have you with us here today, Jennifer. Welcome. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So we want to start off, as always, by telling our listeners just a little bit about you. Jennifer Raff is an American geneticist who is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Kansas. She specializes in anthropological genetics relating to the initial peopling of the Americas, as well as subsequent prehistory of indigenous populations throughout North America. So welcome, Jennifer. We're so glad to have you here. And Jennifer, we love to start off by asking our guests what brought them to the field of their study. So with you, what brought you to the field of genetics and more specifically the study of ancient DNA? Yeah, so I have, since I was a little kid, of course, I wanted to be an archaeologist like every kid does, right? Yes, um, yes. And, <laughs> and yeah, we can't relate I, to that at all. Yeah, no, no. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I never gave that dream up. Um, I also... I guess my mother went back to school to get her degree in neuroscience when I was a kid. And so I also grew up around universities and in labs and, and just immersed in biology. And, 
I could not choose between those two fields. I loved them both. And so in college, I majored in both. And then um, at some point, I don't remember if it was late high school or early college, Jurassic Park came out. And ah. you know how every origin story starts with a movie, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> of course, <laughs> dinosaur DNA was not feasible. And we all knew that. But I, it opened my, my mind to the possibility that I could combine these two loves, studying the past using biology. And so I continued on that path ever since. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I have to say your, your love of archeology span and your passion for, um, being able to explain those fields that an anthropology alongside of genetics really comes through in this book. And, um, that to me is not something I always see when geneticists are writing um, a book about even the genetics of, you know, peopling of the Americas or somewhere else. So that was really welcome to me as an archaeologist. And I teach about the peopling of the Americas. I'm always trying to do credit to the geneticists and the stuff I don't understand. But it was really um, was really lovely to see uh, all the archaeological data marshaled in, in such a comprehensive yet digestible way. So um, so that was that was really nice. And um, your book, Origins, A Genetic History of the Americas, is really kind of written more for a popular audience. And it presents um, what is normally extremely complicated scientific research, whether it's genetic or archaeological. Um, but you present it in a format that really anyone can understand, and you and you provide a real narrative um, to the story, and in each chapter even has its own narrative. So it's as much a history, um, it's much about the history, I should say, as well as the ethics and the methodology um, involved in researching the questioning about who peopled the Americas, um, including archaeology, anthropology, and genetics. And it's about the latest cutting-edge genetic research. So that's a really large pie to fit into this book, and I and you slice it up into different parts and chapters within that. Um, but let's start at the beginning. You start with a land-grant acknowledgment and a poem entitled Summer Solstice by Roger Echohawk. And I enjoyed seeing both of these things at the beginning of your book. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to write the book in this way and to start with those two things. Um, thank you. Yeah, and thank you so much for your kind words. Um, the archaeologists are the, the, the audience that I'm most nervous about reading this book. So it is great to hear that from you. Thank well, you've you. got one on your side right here. I appreciate it. I, I, I did get some archaeologists to help me with the book, but, um, you know, everybody was out in the field when I was really ready for people to read it. So it was hard. <laughs> um, yeah. So I started the book in the way that I did um, it because, well, it just felt right to me. I, my hope in writing this book was to convey this, just this incredible and, and rich history of one of the most remarkable and least understood scientifically human story with respect and sensitivity for indigenous people's own understanding of their history. And I talked to many, many indigenous uh, colleagues, scholars, community members, as I was working through this to um, get a sense for how I could accomplish this. You know, the intention was there. I have my own experience in working with communities, doing projects, but um, in talking about this history, these histories, I should say, um, I did not want to do it in a way that I have seen done before, which is, you know, maybe a nod to, okay, Indigenous people have 
oral, oral, what do they call the oral mythologies or something, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I feel like that's pretty dismissive, yeah, but at right. the same time, I, myself as a, a settler scientist, non-native person, I am not in a position to talk about those stories. They're not my stories, you know, and I have no authority or experience there. So, um, what I could do, what I intended to do in addition with consulting with a lot of different people whose experience was to quote the words of indigenous peoples as often as I could. And so I sought out uh, indigenous geneticists and bioethicists um, and archeologists and storytellers. Um, And I, you know, I could have, I could have done more. I would like to have done more. Of course, we always set the bar higher, but I was happy to, um, be able to incorporate what I did. And Roger Echo Hawk is an incredible storyteller and historian, and I knew he was a poet. And it just, um, I reached out to him and asked him, you know, are there any poets, do you have any poems about the peopling of the Americas? Do you have anything that I could start the book with? And he gave me that poem. And so I couldn't include the entire one. So this is just an excerpt from it. But um, it was it was his contribution, his suggestions. So. It, it's a lovely excerpt. And I think... Um, I think it encapsulates, just from my perspective, so much about what indigenous oral traditions have going on with them and and how they interrelate with other ways of knowing about the past. Um, Could we ask you, would you mind reading it? Oh, gosh. Okay. I wasn't expecting it. I saw the book behind you. So (laughs) it's my last copy. I have to order more myself because I'm running. (laughs) Goodness. Well done, Uh, then. Yeah. Well, I have a lot of people I have to thank with books. So, (laughs) Um, okay. Let's see. So the poem is entitled Summer Solstice, and I can send you a link to where it's published if you want. Okay. Um, Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, In our retellings, I suppose we don't much bother keeping straight the bent details crooked roads in one tale after another, how we handed down sidelong versions of whatever happened next under ebbing oceans and ancient underground somewhere in the receding past. They kept saying their slippery sense of community mattered. It shaped them, their history, the story they filled themselves, the story they filled themselves with every day, waking their minds, connecting to the history of memory as if it all felt real, seemed specific enough, logical enough these changing details that gave rise to the world in our retellings of a tale of the tale of Crooked Road. Yeah. Mm. It's, I just so thought beautiful. that was a, a really, it was almost like he wrote it just for such a book. So mm-hmm. yeah. The entire poem is about the peopling of the Americas mm. is my understanding. And mm. so I think, um, and, and Roger does incredible work, scholarly work um, calling for connecting uh, indigenous traditional histories to archeology. span And so uh, I really appreciate the work that he does and his calls for more of that. So. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. What a great way to st- start off the book. And thank you for reading that. Um, thank you. I'm not used to reading poems. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it was all right. <laughs> so I want to dive in, Jennifer, to the book a little bit and, and talk about one of the issues you address in your book um, the, surrounding the peopling of the Americas, kind of the myths around the peopling of Americas. And you kind of dive right into that right off the bat. So early on, Europeans tried to fit indigenous Americans into biblical narratives about creation. And they later theorized that the technological achievements of Native American civilizations must have been introduced by a lost race of ancient peoples. So we've heard this a lot, this Mm -hmm. lost race, these, you know, these ancient people. 
rather than um, talking about these developments as indigenous, these civilizations as indigenous. So one example you use in the book of this is about the myth of the mound builders and how such myths persist today in fringe theories about the origins of Native Americans, including those that persist in Graham Hancock's recent works. Well, in all of Graham Hancock's works. <laughs> so I just wanted if, if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I can. Um, and I, this was really important to me to get into the book. And honestly, I could have written the entire book about this, but fortunately yeah. I didn't have to um, because Jason Colavito has written an incredible book specifically about this. So if anybody is interested, I recommend you check out his book. Yeah, um, he's, he's sort of on the warpath about it, which is wonderful. Yeah, yeah I yeah. would draw on that a lot when I was teaching about this. It's, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, fan, he's fantastic, and he's really good at confronting pseudoscience. Um, right. So I, I encourage everybody to check that out. Um, but yeah, to to put it uh, more concisely than <laughs> an entire book, um, there is this long tradition of European um, colonizers and and the descendants of that trying to insert Europeans into native prehistory in, or native histories in order to distance um, or or make a break between uh, indigenous peoples, contemporary indigenous peoples and their ancestors. And this is a very, um, I think I think most people don't realize it, but it, it's very intentional, right? It is, uh, it is a tool of settler colonialism to keep uh, indigenous peoples distance and, and to um, try to break their claim on their lands, right? Um, so the myth of the mound builders specifically was um, this idea that there was an ancient lost civilization who was responsible for building all the, the great earthworks that one sees throughout the Eastern Woodlands region and in North America. And uh, this lost race um, was then subsequently massacred or displaced by the ancestors of what would have then been present day Native Americans. And um, it's, it's an attempt to evoke this sort of mysterious past and, tie um, these seemingly, and I'm using air quotes, you guys can see it, but the audience can't, <laughs> exotic, <laughs> right? Um, uh, uh, mystical uh, uh, art, artwork, iconography, motif, fantastic mounds, um, which are just truly spectacular to, to witness in person, um, to, to tie them to this mysterious past and this mysterious group of people rather than living, breathing, present-day people. And um, unfortunately, we, uh, I would say, we are we are deluged by uh, present day examples of this constantly. This effort, right? So, you know, to call out certain <clears throat> uh, history shows and <laughs> history networks that right, right. that constantly feed this this narrative. It's really, really um, terrible because this myth was explicitly used as a justification for. Um, you know, Jackson's, Andrew Jackson's justification for um, the Trail of Tears. He he cited this idea that um, Native Americans had massacred the original inhabitants of the Americas as, as a reason for removing them from their lands. So there are real consequences to, to what we think about the past and our flights of fancy and our imaginations about who people in the past yeah. And these these ideas persist. I mean, we see them in in still best selling pseudo histories by yes. Grant Hancock <laughs> yes. and on the History Channel. Yes, and Grant Hancock. I confront yeah. them every time I teach a, a class called uh, Mysteries of the Past. We use used um, 
Kenneth Fader's book, which I know you cite in your book I as well. Yeah, and it and it's wonderful to confront the pseudoscience that talks about either aliens or some mysterious lost race of people. Um, and and at some point too, you know, this idea that there was a lost civilization that originally did these things. If when people were still trying to use the Bible as um, a literal source to understand the peopling of the world. There was this idea that maybe one of the lost tribes of Israel or some other son of Noah, you know, maybe could have um, been involved in either a, a, a group racially or in, in terms of the Americas, either the lost tribe was the founders of Atlantis and maybe Atlantis was in the Americas and, and all of this. And so we don't have any, we have really good data about the continuous history of the populating of the Americas. Um, and I think you just do a lovely job recounting all of those myths and, and confronting them head on. I also love how you discuss the anthropological history of racial categorization and, and how this is actually very relevant to the story of understanding the peopling of the Americas um, from a genetic point of view. And you start with how the categories developed in the 18th century by Carl Linnaeus um, and Blumenbach, who was a German, that have become so persistent in popular thinking that um, there are these primordial racial groups, Caucasoid, Mongoloid, Negroid, um, and that these are geographically related to Asia, Europe, and Africa. And then, of course, you didn't have anything early on of the Americas. They didn't fit into that. And um, I really want to just go back to the word Caucasite for a minute, Jennifer, because um, I think this story is one that always astonishes people. Um, Caucasoid comes from Caucasian, the Caucasus Mountains. Can you tell people how that even became a term used for what people would think today of just white being white, a white race of people. Yeah, it's got a fascinating history and it is a bit unfortunate, more than a bit unfortunate that we continue to use that term as essentially um, a, I guess, polite, I get people would consider it probably more polite adjective for uh, white people or Europeans, I suppose, um, that all these things are sort of uh, conflated with one another. Um, but in fact, it's just, really, it's really pretty racist term. Um, the term Caucasoid was first used by Johann Blumenbach um, in the 18th century, who sought a way to reconcile the different groupings of humans that were originally, of course, identified by Linnaeus. Um, and he tried to do it on the basis of cranial shape. And um, Blumenbach's idea was that he didn't really okay, I'm not a Blumenbach scholar, but my understanding is that he didn't really actually ascribe superiority or inferiority per se to these categories, but instead uh, he, he considered the Caucasoid category or race the most perfect, the most beautiful in the proportions of their skulls, because I, I guess Caucasians have this sort of, you know, uh, intermediate, they're neither too long and neither too short in terms of the skull measurements. Um, and so Blumenbach's categories kind of stuck and then they were subsequently seized upon by later, um, I guess we would call them early physical anthropologists, right. physicians, right? Who, who then said, oh, not only do we look at the proportions of their skulls, but the volume can tell us something really important about how 
these people were, right? How smart people, different people are with this, their skull shape and their skull size. And so uh, Samuel Morton was really um, the, uh, the uh, physician, um, the American physician really got into this. And so he was filling the crania with, you know, uh, different type substances like shot, lead shot or seeds and measuring how much um, volume there was in each skull. And then he would rank them, right? Which is a thing that Blumenbach didn't actually do. But of course, he put on the one extreme, he would put, uh, he would put uh, Africans as the sort of lowest category. And on the other extreme, he put Caucasians or white folks on the other category. And then Native Americans were somewhere intermediate. And then he created this ranking, um, this racial hierarchy, which has unfortunately really persisted. Um, and that underlined, underla- underlay an extreme uh, extremely problematic and unfortunate contribution of physical anthropology to the eugenics movement. Right. That Samuel Morton, this American physician, sort of laid the groundwork for the American eugenics movement, um, yeah. weeding people out, and, and his idea that the smaller the the capacity, the volume inside somebody's skull equated to lower intelligence. So not only was he mistaken in terms of his, his measurements, um, but then assigning that there was an equation between the size and then in intellectual capacity. So that was all sort of a disaster. Um, but those words stick. Caucasoid, Negroid, um, Mongoloid, these horrible terms that um, carry so much with them, we still even see some persistent in, in physical anthropology. But one thing that I think is is um, so well stated in your book is that the the popular thinking around these ideas of primordial racial groups has really been refuted um, by the field of genetics and the scientific understanding of the human genome. So can you talk a bit about how genetics has essentially disproven these notions of essential racial types, um, as well as the idea that there were ever primordial racial groups in the deep past? Yeah, absolutely. And this is um, something that I, I'm very passionate about, obviously. And uh, in fact, get to I, I get to collaborate with um, some pretty incredible geneticists uh, working on a number of pieces where we uh, tackle different aspects of this quest, this um, this issue. But in putting it, you know, um, broadly, what we can say is that well, this was known before we could sequence complete genomes. But now that we have this incredible uh, resolution on um, human genetic variation that's offered to us by sequencing whole genomes, um, we can see that human patterns of genetic variation don't align neatly with these racial categories at all. They really don't. And I think most people will find that surprising, but it's true. Um, And so human genetic variation is instead distributed clinally, right? So we see uh, gradual changes for the most part over geographic space. There are no hard, sharp boundaries between between different populations in terms of this population only has this genetic variant and this population only has this genetic variant, right? Um, And there are some examples of, you know, natural selection impacting the the, um, proportion of the the regional frequency of certain variants um, in certain environments. So the example I use in my book is... um, Withstanding the effects of hypoxia in high altitude environments, uh, there is strong selection on genetic variants that um, help you do that. And that would be oxygen deprivation. So hypoxia. So yeah. So to be able to help you live at high altitudes. Yeah, exactly. So there are some really fascinating cases 
of, of natural selection really impacting genetic variation in some regions. But for the most part, what we see um, is that uh, human variation, like I said, is clinal. It's, it, it changes gradually over genetic, over dis- geographic distance. It's not partitioned into nice categories, not nice, but hard and fast categories. Um, but the, um, the and, and this is all the result of two things, humans, anatomically modern homo sapiens being a relatively young uh, species, right? We, we evolved fairly recently. And also we're very mobile. Um, so my friend, Adam Rutherford, who's an amazing science writer, uh, talks about human variation in his, uh, his book, A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived. And he characterizes humans as horny and mobile, which oh, I yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Wherever you get humans in contact, I tell my students this all the time. I'm like, they're not, you know, they're, if they're going to meet, there's going to be sex going on. Yeah. And they always laugh, but it does. I mean, we see that it's over true. and over it's again. True. Yeah. So these, the, you know, so our, our genetic variation is shaped by these different, the forces of evolution and also human behavior. Um, and the, the categories that we have of white, black, Asian, or Caucasoid, Negroid, Mongoloid, right? Those don't reflect this com- complex history at all. So mm-hmm. it's fascinating. How do, we, mm-hmm. how do we know from genetics that there weren't primordial races, that these that groups weren't, is there a way that you can summarize that? Because I, I find this is the hardest part for people to get their mind around. They still think in the deep past there yeah. were m- more distinct groupings and only with modern ability to travel more frequently did we get the mixing that we right. have now. Yeah, no, that's definitely not true. <laughs> um, yeah, so what, when we can sequence genomes from individuals in the past, and I, I wouldn't say we have a ton of those sequenced yet, right? But every time we do sequence one, we see that each individual is then, you know, a combination of other populations, right? So humans were mobile, humans moved around. Um, and humans had sex with each other and <laughs> with other kinds of humans, Neanderthals and Denisovans, right? So it's just this, this has been the case ever since our species, you know, has, has been around. Yeah, so, we weren't yeah. even purely anatomically modern human. That's why I call uh, Denisovans and Neanderthals other kinds of humans, yes, right? Yeah. Yes, so exactly. Not, like, you know, obviously, we had sex and we had babies. Yeah. Not different species according to the biological species concept, right? Yeah, um, yep. but that's absolutely. Twisty. That's another podcast. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so, so people were moving around. People were moving around early on. And one of the things that your book makes clear is that all of the Dini research indicates that Native Americans originated from populations that migrated from Asia and specifically from Siberia um, in particular. So is there any evidence of Europeans or other non-Asian populations such as Africans or Australians contributing to the ancient peopling of the Americas. Is there any of that DNA within there, those in the, that pre-1492 time period? And so, nope. <laughs> and if there isn't, do you think there will be, will, will we ever find that in the like, future? Like, have we missed it? Yeah, or, yeah. Oh, yeah, it yeah, just, yeah. just yeah. not found? Because, you know, like you said, there hasn't been a, a ton of this DNA research done yet. We're kind of in the, in the beginning stages of this. So what are your yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah. Okay. So no evidence for any European ancestry in indigenous um, Native Americans and in, in indigenous peoples pre Um I'll take these two separately because okay. I, I've got different things to say on either of them. Um, yeah. And so what, from what we can tell, there, there are 
were two major populations attributed to Native Americans gene pools, right? So the first is um, East Asians, and actually that contributes the majority of their ancestry, it looks like right now. Um, so it was a group of ancient East Asians, who, well, I say a group of people, put this carefully, a group of people who were also ancestral to East Asians. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's really hard to talk about these populations, right? Because yeah. we don't know what they called themselves. But so that group um, contributed the majority of ancestry to Native Americans. And the other group was this uh, um, population we call ancient North Siberians. Um, and they lived um, in Northern Siberia at least by 30,000 years ago. So we have evidence from the Yana rhinoceros horn site, which is you know, Northern Siberia, and above the Arctic Circle at 30, 32,000 years ago. And then, um, and then subsequent to that uh, population, we also see um, the same, the descendants of that population at the uh, Malta site in Siberia um, at about 20, I think I'm saying maybe 26,000 years, 25,000 years, not sure. Maybe it's a little bit younger than that. Sorry, dates, not great. Um, anyway, the Malta site. Okay. So um, that, that population contributed the other branch of ancestry to Native Americans. So these two groups met at some point somewhere. Um, and this, this meeting probably happened about 25,000 years ago. So um, dates that we get from um, ancient DNA estimations are, you know, fuzzy, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Minus a few thousand years, right? So I'm just giving you kind of a number, but it's, you know, it's, there should be a range really. So about 25,000 years ago, these two branches join up. We don't really know where. Um, some archaeologists would argue that it happened in Asia or Siberia, Um I tend to not favor that interpretation, although it's possible, um, is more consistent with the archaeological record than anything else. But as we were just talking about, people have sex when they're near other people. And um, this group, as soon as this sort of gene pool formed, became isolated for several thousand years. So I don't know that it would be likely to be, you know, in that region if there are, because there are other groups there. So, right, right. Who knows? So I think that they were probably, my best guess right now is that they were in Southern Beringia, the Southern coast of Central Beringia, right? The Bering Land Bridge, Center of the Bering okay. Land Bridge. Okay. Just because paleoenvironmental reconstructions have shown that it was a relatively decent place to live um, during the peak of the last glacial mass, which would have been, you know, very cold and, you know, um, arid and there was a lot fewer resources. Um, but it looks like, was a, a possible refugium. Okay. Can't really test that right now. Okay. But anyway, so we see no evidence for European ancestry in that population at all, or in any subsequent Native American populations prior to European contact. It's a little strange because we know from, um, I'm going to say this wrong, the L'Ensemble Meadow site. I cannot pronounce French. I'm sorry. No, that's great. It's like Ensemble Meadow. I don't know how to okay. say it either, but I know exactly okay. where you're talking about. <laughs> that site, <laughs> because I apologize to all the French speaking listeners, that site uh, shows clear evidence of, of, um, of Vikings there, right? Prior to European contact, yes. they were there. We know they were there. There's great archaeological evidence of that, but we see no genetic evidence at all of them. So maybe that was one of the weird cases where there wasn't sex going on, right? Um, right. Or, or just didn't leave a genetic legacy, or maybe we just haven't found it yet. But one would expect maybe to see some European admixture there, but we don't. Okay. But otherwise, no European 
and any evidence at all of any Europeans in, in, in the Americas prior to contact. Um, as far as uh, the other group that you mentioned, um, the uh, Australasians, is that who you're talking about? Just the Afri- people from Africa. Oh, African. From- no, yeah. African no, or yeah. Australians, yeah. just if there were any other yeah. evidence of yeah. people other than these Siberians and yeah. East Asians. No evidence of Africans, no <laughs> direct evidence of Australians either, but we have this really strange genetic signal that I imagine you were thinking of maybe, um, which is referred to as population Y by the... Um, by the authors who identified it, the scientists who identified it, um, Pontus Skoglund and his, co- his colleagues. And this genetic signal is seen so far only in South America. Um, and it is, a, it is a signature of shared, very ancient ancestry between South Americans and, uh, and Australasian populations. Okay. Now, the pattern of genetic variation that's seen, it's very old. It is not consistent, which is, you know, everybody would think, oh, it's a trans-Pacific migration by boat, right? It makes sense, right? No, it doesn't. It's not consistent with that, that model. It's very strange. So that's kind of one of the unsolved questions right now is how did it get there? Who else has this ancestry? Um, it could have been present in that original Beringian, maybe question mark, <laughs> Beringian population, right? Yeah. It just as um, in some people, but not in others, right? It just dates. Right, right. It could just be that some of them in those two original groups that met and became isolated, just some of them carried it. And yeah, yeah. Okay. And that, that, that idea is the fact that there have been other individuals, ancient individuals in Asia who have that in uh, East Asia who have that Ancestors. There was, you said 40,000 years ago. Yes. So there was a human, human remains from 40,000 years ago that also had the same mutation, which to me, you said the the other possibility is that it's just this very ancient signal that was in that original um, sort of donor East Asian population from which people then went and met with the ancient North Siberians, but then also migrated down into yeah. Australia, Asia area. And, and that, that it's just this very ancient bit that kind of persists because you said the signal is unusual, not all the groups in South America have it. And even with any population, it's, it's kind of a few here, a few there. It yes. doesn't look like a big donor population of people came over with it. Right, kind of right. We would expect to see a very different pattern if that was the case. Um, yeah, so that is certainly one one possibility. Um, so it's another, not aliens, though, Jennifer, population Y, just checking. Okay. You know, for sure not aliens. And the she other would like it to be aliens. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we could see aliens. <laughs> Um, it's very human. The other possibility though, is that it could be maybe that there were people there already in South Mm. America, um, who had more of this ancestry, right? Um, that is another possibility that's been raised that there was an earlier migration and that then, you know, the main peopling of the Americas happened maybe about 17,000 years ago, give or take. And they encounter the people in South America. And then that's what results in this, you know, interesting pattern. Of so those people mm-hmm. would have been there before the last glacial maximum yeah, way before. Were, so we're talking older than 20, 25,000 years yeah, ago. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and there so, are, there are some sites yeah, potentially. Some yeah, right. potentially. So, so that's, you know, that's still a viable hypothesis. It's interesting to me. Um, We'll have to see. I think there's going to be more on this subject in the future. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, Jennifer, we're going to take a quick station break before we go on with the questions. 
You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. Today we're speaking with Jennifer Raff about her book Origins, A Genetic History of the Americas. Okay, now I want to start talking about the genetic data that has contributed to really this peddling back of what was the dominant theory of the people of the Americas for decades, which is the Clovis first theory. So just to try to do it in a nutshell, Clovis first was the idea that we have this last glacial maximum period from about 20,000 years ago, you know, to about 13, 12,000 years ago. And during that time period, most of, um, Canada and a good deal of upper North America was covered with two ice sheets that met the, and I'm not going to try to say their names because I always butcher it, but there was an ice-free corridor that only would have started to open up after 13,000 years ago, but really people who've investigated that area have found that, you know, from pollen cores and other things, it would have only really had plants or animals in it um, about 12,600 years ago. So it only seems like it would have been a viable route then. Um, 12,600 years ago is about the same date as the oldest human remains we have right in North America, the, the Anzic boy. Um, and so just about the time it opens up, we, we've been seeing since the 1970s that there have been some sites, though, that are older than this opening. But the idea had been, before we had really good dates, that People went into Beringia, as you had mentioned, and then they they stayed there until this ice-free corridor opened up, and then they came into North America and from sort of the west all the way to the east, they were using these very large points we call Clovis points, and they were Paleo-Indian um, using um, atlatl and and spears, and they're hunting mammoth, and um, that this this was something widespread, and there's this incredible um, similarity between how all the Clovis points look across um, what would be most of North America where they're found. So they were considered Clovis first, um, but as I've said since the 1970s, we've been getting more and more evidence from different parts um, of the United States and in South America and Central America that there were people here before then, 13,000 years ago, 14, 15. So we have Paisley Caves on the coast of Oregon that has evidence older than 14,000 years ago. We have um, Meadowcroft Rock Shelter that Jim Adavazio excavated starting back in the 1970s. We have some sites in Florida, and now we have a couple of sites in Texas, the Galt site and the Deborah L. Franken site. Both have Clovis and then pre-Clovis layers. So we have good radiocarbon dates. We have good evidence now that people were here before that ice-free corridor um, opened up. So I'm really interested in, um, you know, this idea then that if people were here before, how did they get here? And and you've you've definitely sort of um, looked into what theories there are out there, um, but what is the genetic evidence that contributes? to our understanding that it does seem very likely that people were here not even just as far back as 14,000 years ago, but probably older than that, 15 to 20,000 years ago. What do the genetics say on that that corroborates these older archaeological sites? 
Yeah, um, that's a great summary. <laughs> so um, the genetic evidence shows a a very um, rapid. Well, so there's there's two things that that it shows. So first of all, when you talk about, for example, the Anzac boys um, or the the boy who was found on Anzac lands, I guess right. we don't really know his name. Right. Um, uh, his genome and compare it to other ancient genomes in South America, specifically from the Brazil site, Lagoa Santa. Um, if you compare those genomes, as, as some researchers did recently, um, they're very similar. They're very closely related. I mean, I don't mean like you know cousins, but very closely related. If you compare the genomes from the, the, the child found on Anzic lands and the, um, the genomes of the very oldest burials in Lagoa Santa, um, what you see is that they're very closely related. And this could only have happened if there was a very rapid migration, because if you think about the distance between um, the, you know, Montana and Brazil, it's pretty far, right? So ways, that yeah. would have required a very rapid um, movement. And um, it would not have, I don't, I cannot see that as being consistent with overland route, right? Traveling slowly by, by foot, right? So that is indirect evidence for boat, boat travel. Um, in addition to that, what we can see from, um, and this is true, we've known this since we were able to only do mitochondrial DNA, right? Right. But, right. Yeah, this is held up both, you know, from the early mitochondrial studies, all the way through the whole genome studies, you see the radiation of many lineages. And by radiation, I'm, I'm throwing in a genetics term, but I mean um, the rapid diversification of many different groups of people having lots of babies and moving very quickly. And that is a signature in, um, in genetics. That's a signature of population expansion. Um, and that actually takes place, um, that actually takes place about uh, 15, 16,000 years ago, uh, dating with the molecular clock. So that always... Um, Actually, I should I should broaden that. I should say probably between um, maybe nineteen and, and fifteen thousand years ago. Wow, that's a that's a broad range. And and you had said yes. in the book too that it's it seems to be consistent with the signature of rapid population expansion, but not necessarily like intermixing with anything else that was there, but expanding into an area where there aren't necessarily other humans to compete right. with, like an open right. landscape in terms of yeah. Yeah, but, I try not to. Um, try not to use the term colonization because that ha in this context, it has some pretty specific overtones, right? But when you are, you know, a biologist looking at genetics data, that is a signature of a, and in other organisms, that is a signature of what they call a colonization, right? So yeah. rapid movement to new places um, without necessarily competing with other, um, other organisms. So, um, so that's another piece of evidence, this rapid diversification into regional populations. Um, and finally, you know, the timing of these glacial ice, this glacial ice sheet, the melting of that really suggests a possible route um, because along the West Coast, the ice sheet would have melted first. And, and I believe that route was accessible starting about 17,000 years ago. Um, and we, you already talked about the, the accessibility and viability of the interior route being much later. Right. So these pieces of together suggests to me a migration um, probably after 17,000 years ago, maybe 16,000 years ago, hard to say, um, and then a rapid diversification in population across the continents. Um, but I'm going to caveat that, of course, because now we have new evidence uh, from the White Sands site. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. uh, in New Mexico. And I don't know if you were planning to get to this, but um, this site that has these incredible footprints, these trackways of many, many people. And they have been dated um, by means of these little seeds found in the footprints, right, to uh, 20 to 23,000 years ago, sometime yeah, in that, yes. that time range. Yeah. Now I know they're very controversial and the archeological community is arguing about calibration and, um, uh, marine reservoir effects and things like that. So I, I'm not going to weigh in on that because that is definitely outside of my area, but provisionally, if I'm taking those results provisionally as true, um, and, and these dates is reliable, that means that we're probably people, uh, in the Americas sooner than that, sooner than this genetic signal might suggest. And so then we have to say, okay, what does that mean? And how do we, how do we account for it? I mean, there's a, there are a number of different possibilities I'm kind of working on exploring. Oh, Jennifer, we had a nice tidy little argument there. And then the white sands thing just kind of threw the monkey wrench in because yeah, Matthew Bennett was like, yeah, they could have come down through a previous corridor before the last glacial max. And then you're saying, okay. And then did those people contribute to the genetics? Did they make it through until maybe, because it does seem that the geology along the Western coast of the warming being closer to the ocean that there was a coastal route that was very possible. Um, and then it lines up with archaeological sites we found there and what the geneticists are predicting about when this early, you know, signature of populations incoming and expanding. So that story mm-hmm. was so tidy. Um, and then we have White Sands, which I honestly which say is- I'm very convinced by the data at this mm-hmm. point. So um, this will be fascinating to see where it goes. Yeah, I'm convinced too, although I do respect the archaeologists who have some reservations about it. So I, you know, I'm trying to keep an open mind on that. But yeah, it's true. We had this really nice, tidy story. And then perhaps this new evidence has come along to challenge it. And, you know, how are we going to handle it as a field, right? Uh, just like, you know, during the Clovis era, the Clovis first era, right? We have this tidy story. The evidence comes along to challenge it. And you can even go back even further, right? So back to the the notion that people were, that that a lot of um, early 20th century archaeologists and anthropologists had, that Native Americans were relatives, even more newcomers, even newer comers to the to these lands uh, came in, coming about 5,000 years ago, right? That's what Herlichka, Alice Herlichka thought, right? Right, right? And, you know, the Folsom site shattered that idea. So, um yeah. And well, and Clovis, of course, too. So, right. This, this is a, I think the history of the study of Native American origins is just one of, from a uh, Western scientific perspective, anyway, just shattering paradigms over and over and over right. again. Oh, and it's definitely that. the population Y people, I think. <laughs> I already am betting on it. And sorry, go ahead. You go. <laughs> I'm, I'm open to that idea. I don't, I think we need to be, you know, we need to just be like, okay, let's just see what, where the evidence takes us. We have a lot of different models now that we can test. And, right. and I love how the DNA and the archaeology really play against each other sometimes and with each other at other times. You know, they really keep us asking those questions and keep going back to these theories and re, you know, redoing them and re, um, you know, just kind of trying to figure this out. And I think that's what's so fascinating about archaeology and that's so what's so fascinating about genetics, you know. So is that we never will probably in our lifetimes know the answers to these problems or to these questions. But that's the fun part. That's that's the fun part for me anyway. But I want to dig down a little deeper and talk a little bit more about the the Anzac archaeological site because of course that's near and dear to our hearts because it's about a half an hour 
45 minutes away from us <laughs> where we're sitting right now. And so, um, so we've been involved in a lot of the, um, or we've been on the periphery of a lot of these archaeological and, and genetic studies of the Anzic child and have heard a lot from our colleagues about this. And so can you summarize, and you talk about this in your book quite a bit, but can you summarize for us how the genome of the, um, as you say it, the boy, the young child who was found on the land of the Anzac family contributed to our current understanding of migration into the Americas, and especially in regard to these three populations that we've been talking about, um, the ancient Beringians, the ancestors of the First Peoples, and that mystery line, that Y population that we've been talking about, and um, and how that how those contributed to these South American or Mesoamerican populations. Yeah, I'd be happy to, and I am very jealous of you guys. I would love to, to be out there and see it or learn more about the site um, because yeah. a lot of my uh, well, all my knowledge comes from reading at this point. Yeah, and and the the language that I use to talk about. Um, this child really, I, I have to credit um, one of my uh, indigenous sensitivity editors who was like, well, let's, you know, think about it this way. The boy who was found on present day Anzig lands, right? And I was like, okay, yeah, that's, right. um, but it is tempting to, to just say Anzig boy. And I, I do slip into that quite a bit. Um, so, yeah. So what his, his genome has been just incredibly important. And I think the, um, we have learned so much from that genome. Um, it's really remarkable I, because of course it is the only genome from a Clovis era individual, right? Mm-hmm. Um, although I know that some archeologists disagree that he was from Clovis, but um, I'm not gonna touch that. Mm-hmm. Um, so genetically what his, what, what, what his genome revealed that there was population structure in the Americas. Um, and it revealed that by comparing, you know, his ancient genome to present day indigenous populations from whom we have um, from genomes across the Americas. And it's that um, there are essentially, well, first we thought two two major clades, right, or genetic groupings. So the NNA or Northern Native Americans um, and the SNA or Southern Native Americans. And I think that um, while it's accurate, this, I think people get confused a little bit when we call it Southern Native Americans, because it's not just people in South America, right? It's, it's basically everybody um, in Montana and South, (laughs) actually even farther, farther North than that, right? Um, Northern Native Americans are just a couple of different groups, right? But um, uh, Southern Native Americans are basically at least everybody that we have, um, we have genomes from at this point. Um, So it includes people in, we presume, present-day United States, but we don't have a lot of genomes from people in this region right now, from ancient people. Um, so, so yeah, so we see these two, these two genetic clades, and then we also see a couple of other branches. And it's interesting, we can, we can kind of estimate the timing of when these branches split off. Um, NNA and SNA, and then a third really tiny branch that's really right now represented only by one individual seem to have emerged and split um, just after the peopling, just after people moved out of um, Beringia, assuming that's, you know, (laughs) assuming that's where they were, right? Um, And it's really, uh, like it split, they split south of the ice sheets, these these groupings, because um, 
Other genetic work has shown us that there was another group of people who we call confusingly the ancient Beringians (laughs) up in Alaska. And the NNA and SNA branches are equally related to the folks who belong to this ancient Beringian population. If they were, if, if they had split off um, prior to moving below the ice sheets, we would expect one group or another to have more gene flow with the ancient Beringians to be cl- more closely related, right? But instead, genetic evidence right now shows us that they were equally um, related. And so that split must have taken place probably um, south of the ice sheets. Um, the, so these ancient Beringians are interesting. Um, this is a group that right now does not appear to have any present day descendants. And, and that's fairly common in ancient DNA shows us that, you know, genetic lineages do not persist into the present day um, in many different places, but um, ancient Beringians right now do not seem to be ancestral to anybody specifically. Um, and they are one of these groups that seem to have diverged from um, the the main population that was ancestral to all Native Americans. And it probably appears to have diverged during that isolation period when that group was isolated, possibly in in Beringia. There were a couple of other branches that also split off at that point. And we're only just starting to really identify them um, genetically. And this other group that split off um, is known as unsampled population A, right? <laughs> that uh, it's very well named, right? Um, was, was detected by its contribution to the genomes of present day um, of the Miche in, in Central America, which is kind of interesting. So the more genomes that we sequence, the more we're able to identify these sort of little, these little um, the branches of populations and, and kind of complicate the history here. So is this well, the, oh, sorry, okay. Jennifer, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say whether or not these were distinct group of peoples, groups of people with their own history and their own culture and uh, their own different identities. We have no idea. This is just what genetics shows us, that they were genetically detectable as separate groupings. Right. And we should say that the genetics, you know, does not map onto language and material right. culture, the things we would have left behind. So, so um, point well taken. Um, I'm, I'm interested uh, because I think the group you were talking about that shows affinity with unsampled um, population A, so catchily named, um, that they're in Oaxaca. Is that right? That part of Mexico? I think so. Okay. They, I think, um, I, when we visited there recently, there had been all this discussion about how um, they, people there just have really, really ancient um, history and ties to the land. And um, is this come from the idea, as you said, that while a group was isolated in Beringia, perhaps then they there were sort of splitting off populations or subpopulations forming that were then a, a little bit isolated enough to have these discernible strains that you're detecting in the groups now below the ice sheets. So maybe some of these groups formed a distinct genetic signature in Beringia during this this time period where they were during the last glacial maximum. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable model to account for this. I mean, of course, we don't really know, right, but um, right. it seems likely to me. I mean, this is speculation, but uh, it seems likely to me that you know this this ancestral population was dispersed, right? Maybe multiple refugia, maybe across a pretty 
was a big place, right? So it could have been, they could have been in, in different groups and there was gene flow, but maybe not that much gene flow. Between. Right, right. And then if they moved at different times, we would have seen that show up. And so I want to bring in a little bit, I want to ask you about a little bit of other data that supports this idea. Um, the dog DNA that you mentioned in the book. <laughs> this is so cool. I love the dog story. Um, so yeah, this is a paper that uh, was published really right before, um, right before my, uh, I finished writing the book. I'm happy I could get it in there. But uh, this was a study of the mitochondrial DNA from dogs. And um, the authors did a really wonderful job in showing um, this, the inferred population splits of dogs on the basis of their mitochondrial lineages and comparing it to what we know currently of human population splits. And they map really well to each other. I mean, yeah. really it's a wonderful figure, which um, that we redrew, redrew from their paper, but go to the original paper. It's Perry et al. 2021 and uh, read the original paper because it's just an incredible figure that they drew um, showing these branching patterns, these radiations of lineages that coincide really nicely with the human, human lineage radiations that we're aware of. Now, caveating, of course, this is based on mitochondrial DNA, which is provides a limited glimpse of, of history, right? Inaccurate, it's just limited. So um, it may be that once they sequence uh, complete genomes from these ancient dogs or in some modern dogs, the picture changes a little bit, but or maybe a lot. But uh, for right now, this mitochondrial genome story tells a really cool uh, really cool story. It's so, and the idea is that, you know, people were domesticating dogs around, you know, 30, 40,000 years ago. We get to 20,000 years ago in Beringia and, and people would have had dogs that they had tamed and then somewhat domesticated or, you know, dogs kind of domesticating themselves with these human populations. And then people would have traveled with their dogs. And we see dog burials quite quite ancient, you know, in so many places. I just think that's just another piece that's fascinating because we know this interrelationship is so strong. And they, they had found just all of the dogs in the Americas come from kind of a, a different branch of, mm. of mitochondrial DNA. Fascinating. Okay. Sorry. I just had to get that that's in okay. there. That's I know, okay. I know, I know you don't have dogs. You're a cat lover, <laughs> yeah, a cat but I person. do, I have a weird little mixed dog and I'm like, yes, you are like an American dog. I'm totally excited oh. about that. Okay. <laughs> so, um, in, in one chapter towards the end of the book, you take us basically into your lab and you describe what it's like to work with ancient DNA. Um, you tell us about the smell of the bleach and sort of all of, all of these things that you have to do to even work in there. Um, but on one page 169, uh, of it, at least the version that we have of your book, it says that, um, working with, um, ancient nuclear DNA is like, quote, trying to put together a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle when the pieces are mixed with 10,000 other pieces from a hundred other puzzles. And I was like, holy moly, um, tell us a little bit more <laughs> about that process and how you stay sane doing it. Well, and and you, you missed one key detail. Every puzzle piece you pull out costs you money. That's yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I didn't even yes. want to go there because I thought the listeners <laughs> might just turn it off. So yeah, no, that's exactly oh, right. Yeah. Can I, can I confess something to you guys? Yeah. I don't actually do that part of the research. <laughs> that, <laughs> I'm happy for you. Yes. 
that is the part that the the, the bioinformaticians and the, the 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 data people do, right? So the, so that we have these we have these incredibly brilliant. Um, uh, incredibly brilliant nerds who do, <laughs> do the computer stuff. No, I, I I love them. I wish I had time to really delve into that and and do um, this work myself. The analysis part of it. Um, my students are doing it, but I you know I have had the time to to learn these methods. But so what I do? Well, actually, what I really do is I talk to people, do consultations, get samples if I'm lucky work with with tribes and then train students and get the students working on these projects and then I write the grants and then you know supervise right. the research. I don't get to go in the lab anymore and that was the thing I was good at I was really I'm really sad I like that yeah, yeah. you know being a PI is wonderful and it's my dream job but I never get to go in the lab and use a pipette anymore it makes me very sad so right, right. Um, you know, the, the money part is important too it's, it's, it's important the, the work wouldn't get done grant money to do oh, that I know and and so is you know the, the I think my job is, is, is valuable to me and I, I enjoy doing it, but I do miss, I do miss getting the bunny suit on and going in. So, so my part, if I were doing this research myself, which I don't get to anymore, it would have been the actual, like getting the genomes part of it, extracting the DNA and, and, and the the bits that I described in, in the book, um, in that chapter, um, what I do is, is I hand it off to my brilliant colleague, Austin Reynolds, or to other colleagues who I work with, and they do the analysis part of it. And then they tell me, okay, here's what we see. And um, then we talk and talk and talk about the interpretations. And then we go and talk to archaeologists, go and talk to, to the community members and try to put together an understanding of the history. But yeah. <laughs> I so That's appreciated yeah. the description, though, and how careful everything has to be in order to not get contamination. And then just, there's an element of luck. I mean, there's so much that is going into this process, but then there's also, you just hope that there's DNA that hasn't degraded. And when you're trying to do nuclear DNA, it's just so much more work, especially ancient nuclear DNA. Um, Yeah. So so hard. And, and it really is, you know, when you're extracting the DNA from um, from a bone or a tooth or, you know, it is extracting all the DNA that's there, not just the humans, but all the microbes that were in the soil, everything that's there, your own DNA, whoever has touched the bone, right. It's all in there. So how do you sort that out? Right. That's the puzzle piecing. Uh, that's the crazy other jigsaw yeah. puzzles you say that yeah. are in there. So, it's oh, DNA, ancient, DNA, ancient endogenous DNA, particular pattern of damage that you can use to identify these ancient molecules. And so these brilliant bioinformaticians will uh, use programs that they have designed to, to identify that. And then they can assemble a genome doing that. So yeah. it's pretty incredible. And it's, that's amazing. That's amazing. And uh, kudos to you and your students and all your colleagues who do this work, because it, it's it sounds very difficult. <laughs> so we're kind of getting to the end of our interview, Jennifer, and we always like to finish off by discussing the relevance of the past and the present. And you really make the case in your book that studies of Native American origins, whether they are archaeological, osteological, or genetic, can no longer be done without working in collaboration with Indigenous people. Uh, to re- and, and really to have it serve a purpose beyond that scientific curiosity um, that it has been for so long. So kind of working within that social context of the research is so, so important. And that work must be collaborative, but also respectful. 
And so please tell us a little bit about why it's so important to work with um, indigenous nations and descendant communities when doing this research and why you really strive to include oral histories and the perspectives of native historians and scientists together whenever possible. Yeah, um, and I appreciate you asking me about this. I think it's really important just given the history of our discipline and how much um, harm has been done to, to uh, indigenous peoples um, by our disciplines. And I think that we have to carry that history into the present day and or carry the knowledge of that history into our practices, we non-Native scientists. Um, I think that how we come to these scientific understandings is just as important as what those understandings are, right? And um, I think that our discipline has, the discipline of uh, paleogenetics has changed quite a bit in, in the last decade or so, at least since I've been in graduate school, um, and has gotten much better. But in the past, um, you know, this it, many researchers, not all, but many researchers would just do whatever they wanted and get whatever genomes they wanted. Or I guess in the past, it was really just mitochondrial DNA. But um, I, I think that there was, there, there's, there's a better awareness now, at least I hope there's a better awareness now that the results from our research deeply impact Native communities. Um, and so we can choose to do this research in a positive way, but we can't make that choice or do that well, unless we have a good understanding of how previous work has harmed um, Native Americans and how, and, and to take into account what uh, descendant communities say about how they want the work to be done, right? Um, and so in my book, I give examples of harmful research, but I also give examples of good research because I think it's important to see both, right? right. Um, there are some people who have been working in this field. I'm, I'm lucky to count my mentors among them who have done incredibly thoughtful, engaged, careful work and have wonderful relationships with communities. And we can learn from that, right? And do this work in a, in a better way. Um, and at the same time, we also have to understand that, you know, it is okay. In fact, it's more than okay. It's appropriate for communities we may go to who say, no, I don't want you to do this work on my ancestors. Their remains disturbed. And we should respect that. We have to respect that. It's, it's important. Um, and so that's, yeah, that, that was the message I was hoping to convey in this book. And um, again, I have to thank my Indigenous collaborators um, who, who have helped me so much in, in understanding um, the, the many instances of harm that have been done to them and, and ways in which that we can do this work in a better way. So. Thank you, Jennifer. I love that you begin the book and end the book with, with those points. You really are grounding this in a respect for indigenous peoples and their wishes and their knowledge. And um, I think it's just such a wonderful example for people. If I were teaching a class on this, I would definitely be using this book to assign to my students. Um, so um, there's so much more we would love to talk to you about and pick your brain about. I absolutely um, thoroughly enjoyed the book, but we have run out of time. And we just want to thank you so much um, for talking with us today about your book, Origins, A Genetic History of the Americas. We encourage everyone to grab a copy. So Jennifer, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, Jennifer. And thanks awesome. so much to all of our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week. And if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
Thanks for listening today, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about The The Dirt Dirt on the Past. And we'd love to talk a little bit about our um, supporter, Mocha, which is a locally owned boutique in downtown Bozeman, providing fashion for women and tweens, now featuring zero-waste brands and items made from 100% recycled ocean plastic. Uh, Mocha is located, if you're in the Bozeman, Montana area, on 36 West Main. And also, if you're not located in the Bozeman, Montana area, online at Mocha Montana. And that is M-O-K-A Montana.com. So go check out Mocha. They have wonderful, wonderful, beautiful clothing, candles, earrings Aww, and all you're going to make me cry yeah, yeah. and i'm actually wearing a sweater that Yay. i bought at mocha <laughs> it's my only shopping outlet these days proud to be yes, proud, proud to, to be, be. so thank, thanks to mocha for sponsoring the dirt on the past podcast yeah, we are happy to do it and a big thank you to our editor and sound guru steve durbin thanks to lawson alegria for mixing the music and to john chadwell for help getting the podcast out in the world